Amen. Thank you, Archie. And thank you, Brian, for being with us today. We're encouraged to hear about your work of ministry and pray that the Lord blesses you in it. This is an exciting time for Greenwood Presbyterian Church, I think. Um, we are coming out of the pandemic and all of the alterations to life that it has made for all of us in the last two years. And over the past few weeks, we've been considering a big picture of our calling as a church, who we are and what we want to do, the kind of people we want to be, what we want our ministry to value and to look like and to seek to accomplish. Those things excite me. I hope that these things are energizing you as we look at things like what does it mean to be a church that is really for the gospel and according to scripture? What would be the things that we would value and who would we try to be in the world? And so we've considered in previous weeks uh, a, a quick summary of a purpose for a church like GPC. And what I've proposed is that we want to be a church that reaches, that nurtures, and that equips people. And we take those things as, as very important. And we've talked about goals for the church, things that we would want for our people, that we want our people to really know Christ. We want our people to really grow in grace. And we want to be the church. We don't want to come and just sit in church for an hour a week. We want to be the church the people that we are in the world during the week, we want to represent Christ and be the church. And so last week, I think it was, we began to talk about tangible fruit of what it would look like to be the church. What are the things that we should see growing in each other and in our lives and in the life of the church family? And these are in no particular order, but we began last week with worship that we should be a people characterized by worship, both in private and in public. That that should just be consistent with who every one of us is if we're going to be a faithful church in Christ Jesus. And this morning, we're going to consider another tangible fruit, the second of probably um, seven or eight tangible fruit that we'll consider in the weeks ahead. And this morning, we're going to consider evangelism, and missions, that that is something that matters to God, it is evident in Scripture, and so it must matter to us. And so this morning, I'm not trying to go into great detail on these things, but I do want to cast a biblical vision of how these are the very things that Scripture would encourage in each of us, and even call us to support financially. And we'll talk about that more as we get into it. Two passages to draw our attention to the subject, one from the Old Testament, one from the New. The first is from Isaiah 52. You heard it referenced in our reflection. It was quoted in Romans 10, but now hear it again from the prophet Isaiah. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, of those who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. And then in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 20, the very final words in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' final words as recorded by Matthew to his disciples. 
It says, Then Jesus came to them, the disciples, and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let's pray for God's blessing. Lord, these words, Old Testament and New, are your words recorded for us, your worshipers, your disciples, your people, the people of your church, the sheep of your pasture. And so, Lord, would you feed us now? Would you direct our thoughts? Would you help us to think well about life and ministry and what we value and where we put our resources? Lord, we want to be the people of God and we want to be faithful. So do that in us, we ask and we humbly pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Beautiful feet. Did you hear it in Isaiah 52? Did you see it in Romans chapter 10? How beautiful are the feet. Now let's just stop there for a moment. Beautiful feet? Are you kidding me? We don't think of feet as being beautiful, do we? Now I have very good-looking feet. But I wouldn't call them beautiful. Who would call their feet beautiful? It's, it seems a little odd. Maybe for the children hearing this, it would stand out to you. You ever think about feet as being beautiful? In our home, we think about feet as being gross, right? So what's this language of beautiful feet, and why does the Bible use it? Well, we don't talk like this, but we would say something like this that really means the same thing. Have you heard the idiom, oh, you are a sight for sore eyes? You know that idiom? Well, here's a little true fact about that idiom. Uh, the phrase, you are a sight for sore eyes, was first recorded by Jonathan Swift in a complete collection of genteel and ingenious conversation written in 1738. And what he said then, we believe for the first time, was the statement, the sight of you is good for sore eyes. So even that is a weird sounding statement. You have to think, now what does that mean? You're a sight for sore eyes. These really are, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You are a sight for sore eyes. They really are saying the same thing. And that is how good it is to see the person when their feet show up at your door and bring you good news in the midst of hard times or who maybe bring uh, something to fill your need in a difficult time. Or for us, you are a sight for sore eyes. When you're broken down on the side of the road and there is nothing you can do, and you don't have the tools, you don't have the equipment, and suddenly that neighbor who has a big old toolbox in their truck 
happens to pull up and be like, Howdy, neighbor. I'm here to help. You would say, you're a sight for sore eyes. So the Bible uses that language of beautiful feet. And we use the language of being oh, a good sight for sore eyes because, now this is what's important, we believe as a church that we are a needy people in a condition that is dependent upon another to rescue us. And God in Christ, in Jesus, is the only deliverer who can rescue us from our circumstances. And so it's beautiful language. It's an apt summary of the gospel itself and of gospel ministry. Think of the language of the Bible, much of which we have just sung and we've heard about in other passages of Scripture this morning. Things like the gospel, the good news of God, being rest for the weary. Well, that's really good news if you've ever been weary, right? You understand the need for rest if you've ever been weary. Or the language of strength for the weak. Or healing for the sick. Or good news for the brokenhearted. Or wealth for the poor. That's all language and image that the Bible uses to help us understand our situation, our predicament that every one of us is in, and how there is but one person who can deliver us from our predicament, our sin predicament, and he has done it. He is our richness in our poverty. He is our wealth. He is our health. He is our strength. He's our everything. And the Bible says that's good news. And the Bible goes on to say that once you've heard that good news, you don't keep it to yourself. You share it with others. Others who are weak, others who are powerless, others who are poor spiritually. Right? So this morning we are highlighting evangelism and missions. That it is not okay to keep what we have found to be true a secret. It is to be shared with others. So says Jesus. So I thought it'd be good this morning. We have four points. They're all very simple. But to define our terms. So first, what is evangelism? For some of you, that's old hat. That's familiar language. You know it. Others of you, I'm, I'm speaking to you. So if the language of evangelism is just a little unclear, what, why the weird word and what do we mean when we say we want to bear fruit in evangelism? So simply put, evangelism is good tidings. It's gospel. It's a good word that is spoken, that is shared. It's the beautiful feet that show up at your moment of crisis that give you the news that you, that you need. It gives you the tools that you don't have. And in Matthew chapter 28, the passage that we read in the New Testament, it's the very last words in Matthew's gospel. Jesus' final instructions to his disciples. And he says, now go. Everything we've just lived through together with my ministry on earth. Now you go and you tell everybody who I am, that the Savior has come, that the Messiah has come, and you go to the nations. So go and tell. 
Go and spread the good news. Share the glad tidings. And that's what evangelism is. It's sharing the good news. It's sharing the glad tidings. Charles Spurgeon put it this way in this simple definition of evangelism. Evangelism is the good news of the gospel of Jesus going from the mouth of one person to the ear of another. That's what evangelism is. It's not keeping to yourself what God has done for you and who you have found Jesus to truly be. It's telling someone, sharing with them what you have found to be true and good and beautiful in Jesus. Dr. Kim Riddlebarger put it this way. This is his definition of evangelism. Even more simple, and I think I like this. He says evangelism is telling people the truth in love. Quoting from Ephesians 4 verse 15. Evangelism is telling the truth and doing it in love. So you may have your own definition of evangelism. I think those are two very adequate ones. But the substance of the truth, Dr. Riddleberger would say, that's our real task, is we're explaining what Jesus has done. We're telling people that they are sinners, that God is holy, and that that difference between our sin and God's holiness has eternal consequences because God is just. And that Christ alone is the only one who can resolve that sinful tension between God and man, and that he did it through his son and by the shedding of blood and through the resurrection of the dead. That's the content of that, that truth that we share and how that is shared can play out a thousand different ways. Okay? So two things, really three, about evangelism this morning. The first is personal evangelism. And the second is public evangelism. Evangelism. So personal evangelism would be when I or you personally share who you have found God to be in your experience, who Christ has been in your life. Not keeping that to yourself, but sharing that good news, being the beautiful feet that show up in the lives of others and share that good news. Now, there's a thousand different ways that we can practice personal evangelism. But for some reason in our history, we have made this great privilege of ours, we've made it weird. We've made it awkward. That's been much of my experience with well-intended efforts of evangelism. When I was in seminary those 27 and a half years ago, I had a friend, had more than one friend, but I had a friend who purchased a window cleaning business. And this was a business that had been owned by other seminary students and was passed on. Uh, when they would graduate, they would sell the business to another student, and it was a means of generating some good income, doing commercial window cleaning, residential window cleaning. And the original seminary student had named the window cleaning business the King's Window Cleaning. It's a pretty good idea. Opportunity for evangelism, right? So another one of my friends worked with um, the guy who owned the business. And, um, you know, sometimes we just flop in the moment of evangelism, don't we? 
all of us, even seminary students. So my friend who worked with my friend, they were washing windows and climbing ladders, and they would always put a sign out in front of the yard that said the king's window cleaning business. And then it happened, the perfect evangelistic opportunity. I mean, this couldn't be served up on a silver platter any better. Somebody walks up and sees the sign and says, huh, the king's window cleaning business. Who's the king? And my one friend, feeling dumbfounded at the moment, looks at his friend, the owner of the business, and says, I don't know. I guess he is. And that sums up for me my own experiences in evangelism. We flop at it. It can be served up to us on a silver platter, and, and we just we don't know what to do. Have you had experiences like that? Or we can make it weird. I remember the same season of life in St. Louis. Uh, I was working out uh, with one of those friends at the YMCA. We would go at lunchtime to the YMCA and um, try to work out. And I just remember this person I'd never seen before, a young man, walked up to me in the gym. And I'm not a talker in the gym. I'm not very conversational in the gym. Just my instinct. You just don't talk to people in the gym. I don't. But this guy walked up to me and got like this close. Now, this is way pre-COVID. But he got this close to me. I could feel his breath on me. And he says to me out of the blue, cold turkey, have you come to the point in your spiritual life where you know for certain that if you were to die tonight that you would go to heaven? Now remember, I'm an introvert. And if COVID has done anything for me, it's taken my personal space, which is usually like this, and tripled it, right? And I just was like, whoa. I didn't say this out loud. I was like, that is such a personal question. I would like for you to know me a little bit before you drive a dagger to the heart. And it was socially awkward. It's what I've called uh, close encounters of the awkward and evangelical kind, right? Some of you remember that movie from the 80s. It's a well-intended effort, but just a little bit stark and sudden. Or I remember when I was new at Erskine some 20 years ago, uh, talking with a student who had gone on a beach missions trip, which sounds fantastic, doesn't it? To go on a beach, beach missions trip. And he was telling me excitedly what they had done the day before to practice evangelism. And he told me that um, they had their crowd of, of 10 or 15 college students that were serving on this evangelistic effort. And what they did was they got on the beach and they played a game of invisible baseball. And invisible baseball, this is the first time I had heard of it. It's the only time I've actually heard of it. Um, but they would pretend to be playing baseball on the beach, but there was no ball and there was no bat. And so they would go around and recruit players you know, this, this guy, this girl, they're, they're lying down and they're sunbathing and they would say, hey, come play baseball with us. And they'd be like, no, we don't want to play. No, come on, come watch, come watch us play. And so for some number of minutes, there would be this invisible baseball game and it starts to draw a crowd because people are like, wait a minute, I don't see a ball. 
but they're playing full speed as if it's all live action and they're running the bases and making outs and making throws and catches. And then after a few minutes when this crowd has gathered around to watch the spectacle, then everything stops and it's time to share the gospel because you've got a crowd and you have their attention through doing something awkward, weird. Now, I don't question the intention and the efforts of that. But I do think it probably strikes people, most people, as odd. And do you really take seriously what you're talking about when you manipulate people to get their attention for just a few minutes? Now, I don't know what you hear as I tell those stories. What I intend to communicate is it is a high and holy calling for every one of us to talk about the Lord and what he has done in our lives. But I think there's a much more natural, relational, conversational, and hospitable way that should be the norm for every one of us. And that's what I want to encourage for us, for all of us. Instead of doing the absurd, what if we were just normal people and good neighbors who tried to get to know the people around us and their children and their parents, their aging parents, their dying parents? What if we tried to love people, know them, know their stories, sincerely draw near to them, not just for a moment to tell them the gospel and walk away, but if we really cared about them as human beings? That's what I think the scriptures would most encourage us, every one of us, to aim for and to try to live in. You may not know this, but GPC last weekend just sent six of our own to an evangelism conference in Greenville. Did you know that? We, spent, we sent five youth and one young adult to go to an evangelism conference. And it was an all-day conference. And do you know what GPC did? The elders determined, let's pay for them to go. Let's pay for it. Now, why would we do that? Why would we pay to send six of our own to go attend a conference that encourages evangelism, relationships, and conversations? It's because we really do value evangelism, just like we value missions. And so those are opportunities that, that we want to continually provide for you. Sometimes maybe we'll host those conferences. But this was a church in our presbytery that hosted this, so we sent people. We paid for it. Because we really do believe it. That's an example of putting our money where our mouth is. We don't want to just talk about evangelism. We want to equip our people to do it. And not through gimmicks and through awkward encounters, but to fan the flame of being a good neighbor, a hospitable person, a good friend, caring about the people that you're crossing paths with all the time, even if in a gym. Because maybe we need to learn to talk to people in a gym. Maybe we got to get over the awkwardness and the introversion. So that's evangelism, why we value it. That's private evangelism. But a word about public evangelism. I think the most misunderstood aspect of evangelism is that there's a public version of it. It's not just private. It's public. You are being evangelized this morning. 
You are being called upon and reminded of the gospel in everything that's happened since you came through the doors and we began our worship. Do you realize that? I really encourage you to see this and understand this. But if we are doing the things a faithful church should do, then all the scriptures that we are reading, that you are hearing, that's evangelism. The songs that we're singing, if they're biblical and faithful songs, and they are, that's evangelism. It is proclaiming a truth, and it's falling upon us, and we're singing it. We're singing it to one another, and we're ultimately singing it to God in worship. But the whole rhythm of the liturgy, and we've talked through this a few times, but remember, the very fact that we have a call to confession and that we respond to that with a confession of our sin. And that God responds to that with an assurance of pardon. Do you understand that is rehearsing the gospel? And it's doing it corporately and personally for everyone who is here. That's why biblical liturgy matters so much. If we don't have a confession of sin and we don't have an assurance of pardon, we're not evangelizing. We're just talking about God, but we're not modeling for people or any visitor who should come in and see this rhythm, this dance of worship, how the gospel works. God calls us to confess our sins. There is one thing to do, and that is to respond with a confession of sin. And anytime people confess their sins to the living God, he always responds in the dance and offers assurance of pardon in Christ alone. You see that rhythm in that dance. That's evangelism. And if you do go share personally your gospel story, it's going to be a story of your coming to realize you were a sinner, confessing your sin, and God assuring you through Christ that there is forgiveness in Him and Him alone. So don't underestimate the public nature of evangelism that's happening when we gather. The preaching of the Word, and not only the preaching of the Word is evangelism, everything we're doing in worship. Now, the beauty in that, final word on that, is I could get up here for the 30 minutes or so that I'm up here preaching, and I could drool my way through a sermon and just not say the things I intended to say, wanted to say, planned to say. And the gospel is still preached because of what we've sung and the liturgy we have rehearsed together. We're not dependent upon the pastor and the pastor alone. If, if God's word is at the center of what we're doing, it's evangelism. And thanks be to God for that when you're the drooling minister. Amen? Amen. Thirdly on this, and lastly on evangelism, is it is a call upon all of us. Ed Stetzer, who's a popular uh, lecturer and teacher on evangelism, I listened to him this week, and he had a line I really liked. He emphasized that in the scriptures, evangelism is not singled out as a gift for some. It is a call upon all. All who know Christ are to witness, are to witness and testify of him. Now, are some more gifted in evangelism than others? Yes. But all of us are called to do it. You can't say, oh, it's the preacher's job to evangelize. God's put these non-Christians in my life, so I'll go introduce them to Archie so that Archie can evangelize them. Nope. I remember years ago in RUF as a student at Clemson, 
um, David Sinclair, my campus minister, he, he addressed us one time and said, look, stop sending your non-Christian friends to me. You share the gospel with them. Quit, quit short-circuiting the process. You're the friend, you're the voice, you're the means to share your story with them. And, you know, I remember hearing that thinking, that's wrong. It's his job. That's what he's paid for, right? It's your job. It's your job. Now, you can send your non-Christian friends to me, but I might send them right back to you, okay? We have a story to tell. If, if you are in Christ, you have a story of him to tell, and God the Holy Spirit will use it powerfully. Amen? Amen. GPC wants to encourage evangelism. And we want to encourage a healthy view of it and a healthy practice of it. We want to equip you. We want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to create and to initiate the most normal opportunities and the most normal events for it to just start happening. Throwing parties, gathering people, enjoying cookouts, sitting around campfires, getting to know people, and letting your lives overlap, and then having a normal opportunity to share your story. That's the culture that we want to build. And it'll be scary. And those of you like me who are introverts will be like, but I don't want to talk about personal things. But we'll get over it together. And God will grow our church some of those people will start to come here and they'll become future officers in our church, leaders in our church, small group leaders in our church. 10 or 15 years from now, they'll tell stories about, yeah, we had this awkward campfire and cookout and this guy started talking to me and he was safe and friendly and I started coming to church and now I'm an officer at GPC. I can't wait for those stories to be told. But if God is at work, they will be told. But we have to share. We have to evangelize. We have to speak up and tell of what God has done in our own lives. Okay, secondly, well, what do we mean by missions? All right, I'm tracking with you on evangelism. It's, it's personally and publicly and all of us sharing our experience with Christ and the good news that he is in dealing with our sin once and for all. But what's missions? Well, missions is the same thing, but it's going to the nations, moving beyond Greenwood and serving globally. And GPC has a long and a healthy history of supporting missions. I want to highlight that in just a moment. But circling back to RUF International at Clemson, I want to make sure you heard something that Brian said that's so strategic. I love this about RUF International. RUF International is, is keying off the fact that the other nations, 90 of them, he said, are coming to us to study at our universities for a number of years. And so while they're leaving their homes and their families and their livelihoods and coming to an unfamiliar and strange place of a university campus, RUF International is saying, let's strategically gather the ones that we can gather Let's communicate the gospel, live in community. And then what might God do when those people finish their studies, if they're converted to faith in Christ, and now go back to their 90 countries 
and take the gospel with them to their communities, to their universities, to their places of work. How could God do something beautiful and wonderful through that strategic vision? I love the strategy of that. It's beautiful. It's efficient. And so GPC is committed to supporting a work like that because it's faithful gospel preaching and it has global impact. Beautiful ministry, well thought through and designed. So when it comes to missions, two things are possible. Number one, you can go. Number two, you can send. Because not all of us are called to relocate and move to another country. Some are. And so God will call some to go. Some will go long term. Some will go short term. Some may go for a week of medical missions, which GPC has a strong and robust history of doing, sending teams uh, for a week at a time to do short-term medical missions. The rest of us who aren't called to go, we're called to send them, to send them financially, that they might go and devote themselves to the work of ministry globally. And so here's some statistics that I verified this morning. Uh, the bulletin, the information in the bulletin is correct, but maybe incomplete. By my count in the bulletin on the bottom right corner of the front page, I think I count 16 people that we support financially in missions. One of those is Brian Howard. Financially, my understanding is we give right at $100,000 a year of our resources to support those 16 missionaries. Our missions team is happy that we do that. But we have a goal to double that. And we think that if you will continue to give generously to the work of the church, just as you did towards the building campaign that we completed two or three weeks ago, We'd like to double our giving to our missionaries. We'd like to fund those who are our members more than we are. And so that's something we're going to be praying about as a church. Can we give more? Can we send more missionaries? Can we further fund the ones that we're already sending? Because that's how a church should think. We should be on offense in that way, thinking about, let's do more, let's send more, let's support more. And so we want to be a faithful church in this way. We want to be a sending church, an equipping church. We want to be the church. And so 16 missionaries at about $100,000, but with a vision and a passion to even try to double that. Amen? What stories could be told from across the globe of people who've been changed by giving churches, sending churches? We want to contribute to that effort. We want to be faithful in that way. Okay, that's evangelism. That's missions. Well, how about this for a controversial subject? Evangelism, missions, and the sovereignty of God. Okay, here we go. Let's fight. Start talking about the sovereignty of God and ministry. We are a church that believes in the sovereignty of God. God, God hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And we are Calvinistic 
in our view of humanity. We are Calvinistic in our view of ministry, of missions, and of human beings. Now, if you'd have no idea of those categories, I will grab coffee sometime and talk about them. But those of you who do and maybe recoil at that, let me say a few things. First, the biblical understanding, and then secondly, the theological confidence that we have that God is at work through missions and through evangelism. So a couple of passages about this biblical understanding of the sovereignty of God in ministry. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 10. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth, making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, just as that happens, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Isaiah the prophet is saying in his own way, don't trust your feelings, don't trust your logic, but the Lord is saying through Isaiah, my word will accomplish its purposes. Just as rain waters the earth and makes it flourish, so my word, it will not return void, it will not be empty, my word always accomplishes its purposes. The sovereignty of God, even in ministry, and then Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus, speaking of ministry, says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. Jesus has always been the one who draws. He woos and wins sinners. If you remember our study of the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is the wooer and the winner of rebellious sinners. He draws them in. He changes their heart, changes their mind, changes their conscience. Because God is sovereign and He is at work. Acts chapter 4, verse 47, speaking about this miraculous work where people are coming to believe in Jesus despite persecution and hardship and suffering. They're wanting to be disciples of Jesus. They're not running away. They're being drawn in. And the summary of that miraculous work is that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so Old Testament and New, and that's just three little snippets, the pervasive story of Scripture is that God is at work. He's calling a people to Himself. And he uses us in the process of evangelism and missions. And so what does that do for us? That biblical understanding that God is sovereign. Well, theologically, it gives us great confidence. That's what it's supposed to do. Remember at the end of Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, Jesus said, and I am with you to the very end of the age. So when we bumble our way through evangelism, missions, opportunities, when I bumble my way and drool through a sermon, what hope do we have that we didn't just waste our time together? Our hope is that God is at work. God is calling a people to himself. His word will not return void. It will accomplish 
his purposes for it. And so we can take heart and we can take courage that our words, our speaking of what we have found to be good and true and beautiful in Jesus, sharing that with people, God will use that. You don't have to have all the answers. You just have to share what has been done for you, that you have found how your sins are dealt with, that you are guilty and as guilty as guilty can be, but there is a Redeemer, and you have found Him to be both good and true and beautiful in how He deals with you and your sin. You see, you can't fake that. You can't pretend that. Either you've experienced that or you haven't. And maybe it's weirdest when we feel like, okay, well, I can't talk about that because I, I just don't know it in that way. That might be true of you this morning. My hope is you're just seeing and feeling the barrage of God's mercies, His goodness, His truth. In all these scriptures we hear and all the songs that we sing that God himself is evangelizing you this morning, sharing with you that he is available to sinners who call upon him, who look to him in faith to deal with their sins because there's no other way to deal with them than to take them to Jesus. So that's evangelism, missions, and the sovereignty of God. The scriptures teach that God is sovereign and that gives us confidence in our ministries. It's not confidence in ourselves, it's confidence in His promises and His work. And then fourthly and lastly, evangelism, missions, the sovereignty of God, and you. How do all three of those things intertwine together for you, for me? What we have in Matthew 28 has been called the Great Commission, where Jesus commissions his disciples to go and to tell, to go be the church. But you've heard it said before from others, really what you and I have done with that Great Commission is we've made it the Great Omission, the thing we don't do. Now let me pick on ourselves here for a minute to hopefully lovingly encourage us that we would not omit this area of obedience and privilege in the Christian life. So we're a congregation that is both Presbyterian and Reformed. Now, what does that mean? Stereotypically, and let me remind you, we use stereotypes because they tend to be true. Stereotypically, a Reformed and Presbyterian church tends to be more cerebral than it is relational. Stereotypically, tends to be true. We're more concerned with thinking and getting our ducks in a row and our process and our procedure than we are loving our neighbor. Stereotypically, true confession tends to be true in our Reformed and Presbyterian world. But it doesn't have to be that way. We could be both. We could be thoughtful, cerebral, careful with theology and learn to love our neighbor well. Now, that's my hope and aspiration for my own drooling self. 
We want to be faithful to our doctrines, our principles, the things we practice. We take those very seriously. But we've got to be a hospitable people. We've got to love our neighbors. We've got to love the people who don't look like us and sound like us. We've got to have a heart for the nations. We've got to have a heart for Greenwood and beyond. And so evangelism, missions, the sovereignty of God, and you and me, all of this has to, the rubber has to meet the road. This has to lead to something. So maybe you're not the cerebral type. Maybe you're the relational type. Hey, I'm ready to throw a party. Let's just not get too serious at it. Okay, maybe we could make that party more ministry intentional. Or maybe you're like, I'm not going to throw a party, but I'll write a Bible study for you. Okay, no, we need the Bible study. We need it all together. It's called community. It's called fellowship. It's, ca it's called God making our weaknesses stronger and us growing and learning from one another. Now, I know that's a lot, but there are opportunities around us all the time. And may God give us a burden in our hearts to stop wasting them, to see them for what they are. I'll finish with this. I call this a parking lot parable or the parable at the gas station. Not a true story, but imagine with me how it could be. So you're at the gas station tomorrow morning, tomorrow afternoon. Let's make it the afternoon so it's not cold. You're putting gas in your car, and somebody pulls up, and they get out of their car, and they're talking on their cell phone, and you can hear the conversation because they're right next to you. And he says, yeah, I don't know where I am. I feel like I should be getting close, but I just got no clue, and my map's not working on my phone. I guess we have to add that. And then he reveals to you, uh, you overhear that, um, yeah, I'm trying to find that place, um, the Dixie, the Dixie Drive-In, the hamburger joint in Greenwood. And I just, I feel like I'm close, but I don't know where it is. And you overhear that. And you know where the Dixie Drive-In is because you love the Dixie Drive-In. You love their hamburgers and their onion rings. And so here you have this lost soul who's not too far away, but he says on the phone, I think I'm going to keep going that way. And you realize, no, wait, that's the wrong way. The Dixie's that way. And he gets off the phone, and what do you do? Do you say nothing? Well, I know where the Dixie is, but this would be awkward to tell him. You're not supposed to talk to strangers, right? So I'm just, good luck. Hope you find the Dixie. Would you do that? Would you not? If you knew where they were seeking to go, would you not just speak up? Or worse, would you give them bad directions? Would you point them in the wrong direction and say, yeah, keep going that way? You'll find it maybe in a year. Right? Evangelism, I want you to think of that. Evangelism is sharing. No, 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 no. I know that place, I know that person. I know how to get to them. I've done it myself. Let me share with you because it would be selfish to let you wander in your lostness. Now, you may choose to not follow my directions. You may think I've told you incorrectly, but, but I can't spend the rest of the day wondering if you're just wandering around in your lostness, driving around Greenwood, unable to find what you're looking for. See, when we're quiet in evangelism, when we go silent, when mum is the word in evangelism, which is another idiom, 
to not speak up when you should. That's, that's what it looks like. It's to let somebody wander in their lostness, even though you know better. You know the destination, you know the person, but you won't share it. May God work in us, every one of us, to not be that kind of person, but to be quick to say, hey, humbly, from my experience, this is what I found to be true. And if you'd ever like to talk about it, I'll share with you. That is evangelism, sharing the good news of Jesus from our own real and personal experience. Evangelism and missions is the ministry of calling upon people to look to Jesus. And you can't call upon a person to look to Jesus until you've looked to him yourself. Amen? We're going to close in song, a beautiful hymn. And really the theme of it is to look to Jesus. So as you sing this, let this be a time of renewal in your own heart. To look to him. And if you've looked to him, you know now how to share with others how they can look to him too. Let's pray. Lord, would you work in us the heart of evangelism and missions? Would you help us to love people more than we do? Lord, may we not just be cerebral. May we be relational. And in all this, may we learn more and more what it is to be the church. And we ask this and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand and sing with us.